Open your Bibles if you have them, and I want to challenge you to bring a Bible with you. We've gotten sloppy about that, I think, and it's so easy to get used to our devices. And I do use my iPad, and I use my phone for Scripture sometimes, but at least for me personally, it's not the same as holding a real book where I can circle things and underline things and write things in the market. This is our textbook for life. And so since we're starting a new series, I think this is a good time for me just to challenge you. I'm not going to think less of you if you don't bring one, but probably won't. Um, but wait, no, I won't. I won't. I just think it's a really good thing, a good practice to do. And so um, I'd like to challenge you to do that. We're in Acts, uh, the book of Acts. In the middle of the 18th century, both in France and Great Britain, there were serious social inequities that were taking place between the rich and the poor, so much so that it was like a powder keg about to go off. And in France, it did go off. And it was a bloody revolution that ensued. In the British Isles, something else happened. There, there was a revolution there as well, but not a bloody one. It was a, there was a movement that took hold. Um, it, it came known by historians, they called it the Great Awakening. It was a revolution, a, a movement that swept across the aisles there. And for the, for the next few decades after that, 20% of the population of those in Great Britain became followers of Jesus which led to a tremendous social healing in that part of the world. Any culture's breakdown and shame and darkness can only be saved through such an awakening as that. It's true for a culture, a society, for a family, for a person as well. If that were to happen, what would it look like? Well, there's one place that supplies the answer. Because about 2,000 years ago, there was a tiny group of people who believed that Jesus was the pre-existent Son of God on earth, that he lived in the flesh among us, that he died, was buried, and he rose from the grave on the third day. This small group of people had no political power. They had no cultural power. They had no educational power. They had no economic power. Yet within 200 years, this movement, the small movement, swept millions of people on the European continent into a peace and a joy they had never experienced before. It became the leading force of the Roman culture that was falling apart at the seams. Christians literally were holding the world together. Today, we have an historical document written by an eyewitness of that movement. His name is Luke. We just studied his biography that he wrote for the, about the life of Jesus. This is the sequel to that gospel, the book of Acts. So we have the privilege of taking this early document and then doing two things. We're going to examine the genius of that early movement. And second, we're going to bring it forward and apply it to 21st century culture where we live and move. The book of Acts is about a movement. It's about a revolution that started 2,000 year, years ago and has marked life on planet Earth. Today, we're going to examine briefly how we got from there to here so that we know what to do to get from here to there. That is, 
where God wants to take us, and that's next week. So let's begin there. The average person today, if you ask them, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to uh, be a Christian? I think a lot of people, at least in our ministry area, would say, yeah, I think being a Christian means that uh, Jesus died on the cross because we sinned against God, and now he's forgiven us, and we're forgiven. We ought to forgive other people and be more loving and kind and better people. And that's kind of a general understanding I think the world has. Maybe you have that understanding. If so, I hope you stick around because it's a lot deeper than that. It's bigger than that. Because is it this understanding that we're just better people because we're Christ followers that revolutionizes a culture like Rome in the first century or like Great Britain in the, in the 1700s? I don't think so. The true power and genius of Christianity is found in the first three verses of the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Verse 9 adds, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. The essence of Christianity is not about what Jesus taught as much as about what he has done. It's not about us just being better people and more loving and moral. It's about what Jesus has done. That's the root. That's the basis of Christianity. It's what it is. Well, what did Jesus do? He did three things. The first thing he did was he suffered. He went to the cross because someone has to pay the price for our offenses against our creator. And that's what he did. It's not enough just to say, well, God, I'm sorry. I mean, what, what kind of legal system would we have if you stood before the judge and you did wrong and you said, well, I'm sorry, and the judge, well, that's okay, then go on home. I mean, we, we, it would be a ridiculous picture. See, if, if we're saved by his teaching, then the salvation that we gain is on us, but it's not on us. It's because of what he did. He suffered. Second, he, he risen. He has risen. He proved he is alive. Luke says he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. We have 11 different recorded appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. Sometimes to one person, sometimes uh, one time to over 500 people at once. He gave convincing proofs that he was alive. The Jews, some would say, oh, they're just gullible people. We're more sophisticated. We wouldn't believe such a thing. But that's ridiculous. The Jews would have a harder time believing the resurrection than we would today based upon their, their context. That's another subject. He also has ascended, and he's at the right hand of God. Well, what's that mean? I mean, he finally got away from this earth. He got out of here, so he didn't have to deal with us anymore. No, he goes up to continue what he started. In John 16, Jesus said, I've got to go to my Father so we can send the Holy Spirit. In Matthew, he says that you're going to do greater things than me. Are you kidding me? The ascension does not mean that Jesus is no longer here, but he's here all over. Because if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, wherever we go when we leave this building today, Jesus is there and there and there and there and there. He's everywhere because he indwells the life of his people. That's what he does. When you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and Jesus' influence is felt everywhere. And I have to confess, do I live by that knowledge of the ascension all the time? Sadly, I don't. We preachers can be extremely self-consumed. We get like that because we preach, and so we prepare 
And we write sermons and we get bogged down by, is this gonna translate well? Did I say that right? I wonder what they thought about that. I wonder if they're gonna like that illustration. I wonder if that's gonna offend anybody. And so that's why, you know, we're always changing things up to the last minute. I mean, Luke has the gall to tell me between services what I should change. Young whippersnapper, think he knows things. No, we're always trying to help each other do better, right? We, we, we want to do it. The problem is we can forget if we're not careful in the preaching moment that there's a possibility there that someone gets to Jesus, that someone is transformed a bit, that somebody leaves more deeply committed than when they walked in. But it's no different than any of you and me during the week when we're, we're blessing somebody in our neighborhood when we're opening our homes to somebody to bring them into our house and to bless them and to love on them, when, we're, when we are at our workplace, when we're in the, in the school classroom, we're on the college campus, that wherever we are with the Holy Spirit in us, there's a possibility there, not just for a little bit of inspiration, but for transformation and revolution to take place. When we live with the understanding of the power of the ascension and that Jesus is in us, he's working wherever we go. I mean, the possibilities are endless, and we need to adopt that mentality more and more. I, I trust that we can do that together. So now let's move from there to 1794. Let's pretend that you've bought a house, and the house is over 100 years old. And when you look around this house that you bought... Uh, you can see lots of changes have happened. You can tell they've probably moved a wall there. They've added a closet there. They, they, they moved the bathroom. They added a room on. They enclosed the porch. Uh, they did all kinds of things. And you, you're dreaming, wonder what this house looked like when it was first built. And so, you know, people have left stuff through the years, previous owners. And so you go, you go up in the attic, and there's old old dresser up there, and you open the drawer, and there is blueprints. They're blueprints of, of the original architect and the building of that house. And so you take a look at it, and, and you decide, I, I, I want to take this house back to what it looked like. And so HGTV calls it the good bones, right? And so you go back to the good bones of the house, and you can see those studs. There's nothing there. You sort of gut it, and you start over with the footprint and the basics, and then you start the process, not of, not of remodeling, but restoring. And what you end up with is this beautiful house as was intended by the architect. Now, in a sense, that's our story as a congregation. After 2,000 years of wear and tear, and abuse and disuse and reforming and remodeling and adding and subtracting, some, some grew very weary of the condition of God's church and what man had done to it, thinking he had a better idea, had a way to reform and add and take away somehow. And so they decided, let's go back to the blueprint which is the book of Acts and the New Testament. Let's just follow the New Testament. How did the New Testament function? On what basis did they function? If this is inspired word of God, then God has for us how we need to function. And if we could follow this blueprint, not only would our beliefs be accurate, but the vitality could be restored as well. So between, between 1794 and 1835, six separate pockets of people, groups of people, 
and six different states along the Atlantic seaboard started meeting. They were not aware of each other. These groups were in New York and Virginia and Vermont and New Hampshire and Kentucky and Pennsylvania. Again, they didn't, they didn't know about each other. But as they met, they decided this one thing, that they didn't want titles to divide them. They said, we, we're not saying we're the only Christians, but we want to be Christians only. Christians only. And out of that came the name for the Christian church or the church of Christ in some places. And they, they individually as groups came to these conclusions that we believe that baptism was by immersion for the remission of sins, that there should be weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, that we should call Bible things by Bible names, that there would be direct support of foreign missions, that, that each local congregation should be autonomous, self-governing, not by outside influences or a home office. All this without knowing each other. Well, how could six different groups of people come to the same conclusion? Because they were following one blueprint. They were looking at the scripture. And what grew out of that eventually became called the restoration movement, of which we are a part even today. Now, of those six groups, there was a man by the name of James O'Kelly who was leading the group in Virginia to this new understanding. And he moved, or he, his influence was felt in North Carolina. And there was a little community in northern North Carolina called Guilford, North Carolina. At this time... Things were happening. So we're going to move now from there to here. There to here. Those people in North Carolina. Uh, the country, our country was moving westward fast in a fast uh, pace, rapidly. These people were marked by this new understanding of the church and what it means to be a Christian. As they took this new energy, the vitality of moving westward, and they brought with them this new understanding of what the church should be. So they came to Dayton, Ohio, where they camped out for a little while. Then they came on west to what was the, now the Indianapolis area. Settlers had come to the Indianapolis area in 1820, and they camped along the banks of the White River. In 1821, a year later, the first plotting out of streets in the center of the city were, were outlined. Somehow, shortly after that, these from Guilford, North Carolina, got there. There was an epidemic at the time, and so they kept moving a little further west to what is called today Plainfield, Indiana. And when they were here, by 1829, they formed themselves into a church, which today is called Plainfield Christian Church. They started meeting in a log church. Anybody live in Ridgeline Estates? Here today? Okay, well, it's on Center Street. If you go back there, there's a cul-de-sac, and there's a place where they didn't, don't build houses on that site because when, they were being, when that, that subdivision was being excavated, they found uh, uh, tombstone pieces of our charter members. So people were buried there. There's an old hitching post there where church members would have uh, hitched their horses or whatever. And so that's where we first met. And then, of course, most of you know the story of where we've been. We moved uh, later, 1865, to this brick building on Center and Crewson, and then beyond that to Buchanan Street in 1955, and then an educational wing was added in 72, and then we moved to this site in 94, 
We expanded this facility in 2000 and added the Children's Center just a few years ago. But those buildings, that's just buildings. We have a fallacy among us. We say, I'm going to church. When it's the people, that's the church. So these additional buildings only represent a vision for people. That the church is people. That's why where you go this week, you are the church in those places. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to be God's people, you know, wherever we go. Real Christianity happens at the intersection, intersection of truth and power. And they both must, ex, they most must stand together. If there's power but no truth, there'll be all kinds of movement, but it won't be solid movement. It won't be based in anything that is substantive. But sadly, often churches claim truth, but there's not much power going on. And Paul warns that there is a kind of godliness that has no power in it. And we want to be, be sure that as we function together, there is a combination of truth and power by which we live. That's why Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It's a power that we have to pray happens in us until it explodes in us. I just have this simple question for you. Has the gospel captivated your heart? Because the gospel doesn't lead to power. It doesn't bring power. It, it, it isn't about power. The gospel is power, Paul says. And unless the gospel, the good news of Jesus, absolutely grips our hearts and captivates us, and that so much so that Jesus is our first Lord, that he is, he is over above all other things in our lives, that there is nobody above him. We are not yet the people we're to be, and we, can't, we will be, won't be empowered to do what he's called us to do. So that's my question. Is it, is it true? Is your faith simply a list of things you believe? Or do you sense the empowerment? of God's spirit within you to be who he wants you to be no matter what scenario is going on in your life. Now, how do you know that? I think there are a lot of ways here too I can give you. The one way you know the gospel has captivated you is there is a revolution in your identity. There's a revolution in your identity. In other words, of all the things that can label you, nothing is more important than the fact that you are a Christ follower. It trumps your race. It trumps your occupation, your socioeconomic status, your degrees, your dreams, your involvements, whatever it is. It trumps your family. It trumps everything. You are first a follower of Jesus Christ. When that is true, you are unshakable in your faith. The second thing that's true when the gospel captivates you is that all things that used to control you no longer do. There's not hot and cold. There's not up and down. There's not, you know, you're not all over the page spiritually because something has happened. You're not controlled by fear anymore. You're not controlled by success or image, self-image or what people think of you and reputation. You're not controlled by peers. You're not controlled by the whims of this age in which we live. There's only one who controls your life. The gospel is the power of God in us. Are you living by that power? Do you even know that power? Maybe there's a time you knew it and you don't know it anymore. Maybe there's a time you were alive and in your faith, you loved Christ, you loved his word, and something's happened. 
You wouldn't stop going to church, but you're pretty blasé and lame anymore. God wants you to know his power mightily working in you. Maybe you're still dead because you've never been born again. And the Bible says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. I doubt there's anybody here who is not concerned and troubled by the condition of our country today, regardless of your political beliefs or persuasions. And dear friends, what our country needs is not a new president and not a new Congress and not a new Senate. It needs a great awakening. And I believe our church can have a great awakening in us. I believe we can join together above all our different kinds of opinions and join together for one central thing, to see that Jesus is, is Lord in our lives and that, he, that people that we know have every opportunity to know him as well. What would happen if we all took that seriously, gospel power seriously, truth and power together? That's how we get from here to where God wants to take us, the unity of truth and power. People, people lived that way. There was a time they lived that way and the world was rocked. And now we're called the same way so God can take us from here into the future. That's where he wants us to move. He's looking for a revolution to happen among his people, you and me. One that will sweep up our lives, our communities, our families, our schools, our hospitals, our places of business, our neighborhoods into a peace and a joy that they've never known before. Can we join together for that? I tell you, as we do, what we'll be doing is just simply carrying on what Jesus began to do and to teach. He's on the move. So let's join him in the greatest work in the world and be change agents where he sends us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for believing in us by empowering us. We thank you, Father, that you have commissioned us to make disciples as we live our lives together. I pray that we learn how to embrace the world and love the world around us like you loved us when we were still sinners. I pray that you teach us to see people with the eyes of Jesus. I pray that you awaken us to our own slumber and out of that slumber into a life of joy and exhilaration empowered by your spirit. I pray that you change our church into something that is so dynamic and so vitally alive that anybody who comes in here cannot help but know that God is in this place. So thank you for all the possibilities, all the potential. It will happen only by your empowerment and your spirit. And we pray for that deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship.